Monday night, and that means a brand new episode of Graphic Policy Radio. This is a show that wiretapped the Legion of Doom HQ as soon as Lex Luthor uh, snagged the presidential nomination. <laughs> uh, we There we go. That's what I was hoping for for an opening. All right, we've got an awesome guest tonight uh, talking about kind of like one of the hot Kickstarters out there uh, and someone who's made massive news uh, this past weekend at Emerald City Comic Con. Before before I introduce her, uh, I want to bring on my co-host Nalana. How you doing? Excellent. Um, I have uh, come back right in the moment of some very key come back from vacation. I should say right in the moment of some very key conversations in comics right now, and I'm really excited. We have Shelley Bond on the show because she's someone whose work has been big inspiration and who I am really honored to have on. Wow! Yeah, so. That's, that's quite a <laughs> Well, uh, oh, the intro is about to get better. I'm going to need to be all sorts of uh, kissing butt going on. Uh, so for nice. those who don't know. Do I get a drum roll? Do I get a drum roll? I don't know. If we, yeah. There we go. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. we've got an amazing guest tonight. Uh, legendary is, is a term we don't actually use tons on the show, but really uh, she is legendary in, in the comic industry. Um, uh, Shelley Bond is on to discuss a Femme Magnifique. Uh, which is a who's who of comic creators celebrating kick-ass women who've paved the way for equal rights in science, politics, and the arts. It's currently on Kickstarter. Uh, go contribute. I've, I've already contributed. Uh, but Shelly herself, uh, she's a legendary editor uh, who's been in the industry for you know decades at this point, uh, edited over 950 a comic books. Quarter of a century. <laughs> quarter of a century, if we want to be specific. impressive. Uh, beyond closely uh, though (laughs) uh, beyond uh, respected and she's one of those people that if you have conversations and you talk about some of the greatest editors her name comes up um, just everyone I've talked to has said something positive about her Um, you know she's edited uh, tons of comics you know Vertigo would not be Vertigo without her uh, and I can't wait to see what she does next. And we're going to talk about Femme Magnifique and then talk a little bit about uh, the big announcement out of Emerald City Comic Con, the Black Crown, uh, which is a new imprint from IDW Publishing. But after all of that, Woo! welcome, Shelley. <laughs> Why, thank you. That was quite a big suck up. I think someone must be flipping you some checks, like someone from my family. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> That was really that was quite an introduction. I'm so well, you know excited. I'm so excited to be here. First of all, thank you for inviting me um, to be on this podcast. I should make it clear to you though that this is my first live podcast. It's my third ever podcast, and I haven't huh. been live on the radio since I was a college DJ in 1980. <clears throat> so anything goes. I'll apologize up front. Because I ramble. No, no apologies needed. Uh, yeah, I mean, this, this is yours one that, you know, we've, we've talked about, like, huge people that we'd love to get on. Um, your name's actually come up a bunch of times, and it was one of those, like, uh-huh. oh, there's no way in hell we would ever get her on the show. Uh, so to say, I think, I don't want to put words in Alana's mouth, but to say we're excited is probably an understatement uh, for that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, nice. Thank you. Yeah, so one of the questions we always ask to, to kick things off, um, you know, to go back to the beginning of, like, how you actually got into the comic industry, specifically editing. Well, I wasn't 
a kid who read comics, for sure. Um, my earliest interaction with comics was just that I loved the penis. So I read Charles Schultz as a kid, but I, I only read maybe the occasional Archie comic. I really got into comics in college. I studied film and video and audio production at Ithaca College, and I took a screenwriting class my senior year at 8 in the morning, three days a week. Now, I know what you're thinking. I probably never showed up, but that's not true. I was quite studious. <laughs> I was always there on time. My screenwriting teacher actually showed us Peter Gross's Empire Lanes to show us, um, tell us about storyboarding. And I was fascinated by, by the comics. I didn't even know comics were still available, and I thought for sure they were only superhero books. And I really didn't want to have anything to do with, like, girls running around in stilettos and bikinis, you know. So I was really surprised that comics were not all like that. There was a kid in my screenwriting class who saw my eyeballs pop out as we were talking about comics. And he said there was a comic book store, you know, right in town. He used to work there. And he said he would, he would take me there. So um, I followed him into the comic book shop. I was like Dorothy and Oz. And it was a really great time for comics. It was the late 80s. So it was the time when there was that great black and white boom and that great indie boom. So you had epic comics. You had Kamiko with Matt Wagner's Grendel, which was like one of, one of the two books that really um, made me want to have a career in comics, Grendel 16 and 17, and also Ooh. Love and Rockets. Those are the two books that blew my mind. But I also picked up, Electra Assassin, Bill Sienkiewicz, just like, I couldn't believe that, like, this painted art was actually, right? Still called a comic book? Yeah. And uh, so that's where it began. And and strangely enough, that kid in my class would later become Will Dennis, also a comic book editor from Vertigo, because many years later, after I cut my teeth and established myself as an editor at Vertigo, what my assistant had left, and I thought, maybe I better look up that kid and offer him a job, because is partly uh, the reason that I actually have a job in comics. So that was pretty much how Will got his career start. That's a really cool story. It's it's an interesting one. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think we've had anyone ever mention Grendel as their influence. It's always like X-Men and some other stuff, but that that's uh, a new one. So that's a definite old school well, just- great series. I have to say, I just had breakfast with Matt Wagner the other day, and I was saying to him that, you know, I think what was so intriguing for me, like so many, you know, college students, I just wanted to be an auteur. I wanted to be a famous filmmaker doing indie films. I wanted to be the next Maya Darren, you know, of the Mm -hmm. film world. And so when I read Grendel, I was just so impressed with how literary the art form was, you know, Matt um, was so erudite and such a great storyteller, and I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it It wasn't just a book about capes and tights and good versus evil. I mean, it really had some serious literary chops, and, and it was evocative. And, yeah, that was just definitely my first, like, awakening to what comics could do. And ever since then, I've just been fascinated by the art form. Did I lose you over that? You still there? no no no. I, it's, I think I yeah. think a lot of folks got into comics creating because there was an identification with film and like the idea that you would, would be able to work 
in a medium where you had like more artistic freedom and that, you know, that hasn't always been the case for folks, but you're definitely associated with a part of the industry that has prioritized that kind of artistic freedom. Well, and thanks. Authorship in I comics, have, you know, I have to, I have to say it was something that I really hope that I brought to the medium that made a difference because even when I started out at Kamiko, I mean, the irony of all of this is that Peter Gross's Empire Lanes was the, you know, the, the, teachers, um, the teaching tool of the screenwriting teacher. And a year later, I'd be working with Peter Gross and Matt Wagner at Kamiko the Comic Company. So how fascinating to be able to say that. And um, what I also found to be interesting when I got after Kamiko and I got, I got a job with Karen Berger at Vertigo, I noticed that so many editors had an English background, whether it was, you know, English lit or, um, you know, a master's in English. And I came from the visual side, so I, I had always hoped that I could contribute on the other side, bring in more of the, the visual storytelling chops that I, that I um, acquired from film school and also just from working for a few years with just epic storytellers like Matt Wagner and Peter Gross and Mark Buckingham and Chris Pacello, um, Mike Allred. I mean, I think I learned more from just working one-on-one with these terrific storytellers and hopefully that shows in the books that I've done and the books that I will be doing. Did you, when you were doing that, that work with Vertigo, like, did you have any idea at the time of like how groundbreaking that was and what an impact on the industry that would be? I have to tell you, I, I felt pretty lucky that I, that I kind of came in right uh, before Vertigo launched. I was a fan of the Burger books as they were called back then. Hellblazer, I, I was with Hellblazer since the beginning. That was one of the books that I picked up when it first came out. I was a massive Grant Morrison fan, and I still think to this day that Grant's Doom Patrol is the definitive masterclass in comic book storytelling. I had the opportunity to read it again when I was preparing for Gerard Way's launch for Young Animal last year and his run on Doom Patrol. And Gerard and I both agreed we would, we would reread the entire series and take notes. Mm. And believe me, I took copious notes, and, and everything that I gleaned from it was just mind-blowing. And it, I can't recommend it any higher as, like, one of the ultimate books you must get and read just to, to, to understand how a comic book functions on paper and in theory. It's fascinating. So with uh, with the the project that you're working on, uh, Femme Magnifique, like how did it actually start coming about and, and coming together? Because I mean, it's a huge project. Thirty, we'll call them like right now, thirty stories, but obviously there's going to be stretch goals. It looks like, uh, and with over fifty uh, creators, I mean, that's a, a huge thing to put together. Huge, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you. Um, as you guys probably know, I left DC in April. I spent the entire summer just having fun, traveling. I did a whole lot of reading and writing, reading comic books and novels for pleasure, not just with a red pen in my hands. But by the end of the summer, I was just ready to get back to work. And I put together an imprint strategy. And I also was thinking a lot about, you know, the, the pending election and, and about just women in general. I always felt like it would be cool to have just a volume of short stories that saluted women in the arts. And 
it was something that was simmering all through the fall. And I always liked the title Femmenifique. And so many of the books I've edited actually start out as titles. Um, Because I think, you know, the titles and the covers really have to grab you when you're in a comic book store. I mean, they should tell you, about what's happening, what you know about what's happening inside the book. They should be intriguing and arresting. So I had the title, I had the bones of the idea, but there were two events that really clicked for me in November that put Femmanifique from theory to execution. And the one was obvious. I'm sure you can imagine it was the election results. So my family and I went to England to a convention. We went to Thought Bubble in Leeds. We came home, um, and we were sleeping with the TV on, and the election results came on, and I thought I was in, like, this strange twilight zone haze when I heard the results and this missed opportunity for women, and I, I really thought I was, like, dreaming, and it, it was terrible, and I woke up, and I, I saw so much negativity everywhere, um, comic sites tweeting, all the people in the comics community just... I mean, everybody was shocked and depressed, and it bothered me, you know. I mean, obviously I was disappointed, but I, I, I felt like we needed to kind of come together and do something that could just maybe take all of this energy and twist it into like a force of positivity. So that was the first, the first big event that sort of made me think, okay, i got to step up. Second event happened the following day, and it, it, it was uh, pretty much I got – a ticket to see one of my favorite female front women perform live. Um, it was uh, a concert to see Roisin Murphy from the uh, former, formerly from the band Maloko, and she was playing live at the El Rey Theater on my son's birthday. So my son was not happy about this, but I told him I would get him extra presents, but I wasn't going to miss that show. And I thought, all right, I'm going to the show, and it was really at that concert that I, you know, I realized, my God, there's this crush of people and they're all enjoying this amazing performance. And I don't know, are you guys familiar with Roisin Murphy as a, a singer-songwriter? No, I'm, uh, I'm actually I'm, not. I'm not, no. Okay, well, hopefully you'll check out her, her I was, music. I was say, I'm I mean, about to Google. <laughs> well, I hope so, because um, I think she's one of those uh, artists that just doesn't get the props she deserves. And so, you know, it's pretty much at this show. I'm at this show alone, and I'm seeing this, like, very um, enraptured crowd. And I was just thinking, this is it. You know, I need to do a book that not only salutes women in politics to acknowledge the, the missed opportunity, because hopefully the next president, president will be a woman, but also acknowledge women in the arts and sciences, because so, so often – women have to just kind of push their way in to get noticed. And it's just not right. I mean, come on, it's 2017. We shouldn't have to keep like, um, you know, cracking the ceiling around us. It's like, I feel like, you know, we, we need to kind of make sure that the next generation knows where we've been so that we can all just kind of move forward to a positive future. And, and, and so that, that's where it crystallized. So the next day, I called uh, Brian and Christy Miller of Hi-Fi Color Design. Um, mm-hmm. They've been friends and great colleagues and uh, co-conspirators in comics for over a decade. That Brian and I have worked together um, 
on quite a few books, and I've, I've known Christy also for, for quite a while, and she's really the mastermind of their business side, and she's also an archaeologist. So I hmm. knew that they were both feminists, and I thought they might really be up for this. And then there was also um, another ulterior motive. I knew that they had kick-started a How to Color Comics book because I did the introduction for them a few years ago. So I knew I couldn't just do the whole thing myself. You know, the goal was 176 pages, you know, ultimately 50 stories, and hopefully people will contribute. We're really about three grand away from getting 50 stories, so fingers crossed. But I knew they were the right people to call, and I was hoping I could, you know, talk them into it. And I think it took all of about 20 seconds to talk them into it because they just loved the concept behind it. And um, the idea that we're going to create something that's eventually going to be an evergreen book. You know, the idea is that this book is going to feature, you know, women from from the here and now and also, like, women throughout history. And it'll be such a wonderful thing for for parents to pass on to their children and for librarians to keep in stock and teachers to use in the classroom. Mm -hmm. How did you guys uh, decide which – which other like creators to, to choose from for the, uh, for the book? Well, the choosing the creators was a lot of fun. I mean, I think, you know, we pretty much um, would shoot a few names back and forth to each other, but my strategy was really to just do a mix of people that I've worked with in comics who I knew had a great personal story to add. And then also people that I've never worked with before because as I was enjoying my time off from working, which was such a luxury, I was doing a lot of scouting. You know, I, I was going to conventions. I was, I was living on the other side of comics, and I was, I was having such a blast just also, like, trolling Twitter and DeviantArt and Instagram and following, you know, artists whose work I loved, just following all of the – the artists that they would recommend. So there were tons of people who I thought were really talented. And I thought I kind of wanted to do a mix of the usual suspects, the people that I've worked with for 20 years, but then also some of the new people. And one of those people I have to say is Tess Fowler. She was the first person contacted. Isn't she the best? So Mm -hmm. Tess is someone who I've noticed her work for a very long time. I liked her stuff, her um, art on Rat Queens. And back when I left D.C., she had also just finished a run of, of Rat Queens. And she was always on my list to contact for Vertigo, so obviously didn't have a job to offer her there. But I always had her on, on a list because I just thought she was tremendous. So I reached out to her first. I didn't even realize she was uh, local. So she's, she's based uh, in L.A. And so um, I asked her if she wanted to draw a story, and she asked if she could write and draw a story. And so... I, you know, she was the first one in. I said, okay, let me see, let me see your writing chops. So she sent me some, some pieces that she'd written, and I was really impressed. So she's the first person who was commissioned. I knew I was going to hire two people just so I could kind of, you know, have some, some promo art and some samples. And so um, Tess did a great job. She picked someone who was rather obscure. She picked uh, Kat Black, who is um, – a vlogger and uh, an activist uh, for gender rights. And she lectures at universities and high schools all over the country about equality and discrimination. And she's just a tremendous force and has been a great inspiration to Tess. 
And I think one of the best things about the stories in this book, really the ultimate goal is part historical information, so part mini biopic, and part personal story. And that's why I think these are, this is a book that is chock full of like stories about women that you haven't heard before. So even if like, for instance, you're familiar with Sally Ride, the astronaut, who Cecil Castellucci wrote about, you probably don't know why she changed Cecil's life. And so that's what's mm. um, a critical part of what makes this book so special. Because in my editorial experience, when the stories are personal, that's when you really tug at the heartstrings. That's when you really have um, something that, that affects change, that a story that lingers, that inspires um, positivity and, and, and hopefully empowerment. Well, it's interesting about Sally Ride is like, you know, when I was a kid, she was this big, growing up in the 80s, which was like really the heyday of people being aware of, of her in terms of space. People, you know, really talked about her as being a female science hero, but like no, but she, you know, she was closeted um, for the majority of, of her life, basically. And, and so when she died, uh, you know, having folks talk, you know about her as her being a woman who was in and you know essentially was married to another woman. It was like a big sort of breakthrough and reflection on you know another moment of it in our childhood, like how we have all these LGBTQ heroes and icons who just hadn't been acknowledged yeah. as being such by the stories we were told when we were young. You know. No, that's so amazing. Actually, you know what? Why don't we call Cecil Castellucci because I'll bet she could tell us you know a little bit more about working not only in telling the story about Sally Rye, but also um, what it was like to work with Philip Bond, who some of you may know I have a kind of connection to on some level, <laughs> i.e. I married my favorite comic book artist, so now he's, and he's my husband, and he pretty much um, is the greatest guy on the planet and, and every other planet. Is it possible to call Cecil and have her come join the conversation? She's on. <laughs> Cecil. Cecil is on the Are air. Are you really here? Hi, I'm here. It's magic. Cecil, oh, my God. <laughs> it, it's magic. <laughs> I thought I'd call I didn't know you were on. So, yes, let's get you to answer that question yourself. <laughs> Wait, what was the question? I think I was in the holding room and I didn't hear it. Oh, sorry. I was talking about how, you know, in, in the 80s, like, nobody was really talking about Sally Ride's sexual orientation because that was something that wasn't talked about in the press in terms of her own talking of her own narrative. And when she died, that was, you know, a really important part of the story. And I was, you know, I thought it'd be great that there'd be a book that would acknowledge that, you know, about her life for future generations of kids to, to, to know that. There is um there is a biography that came out um about her I think like last year or the year before um mm-hmm. and I I think it touches on it I actually saw her sister Bear ride um her sister's name is Bear how cool is that uh, mm-hmm. uh talk about um Sally um and stuff uh but you know I I think Sally was um you know it wasn't in the eighties, it wasn't really a time where um, women were talking about that. And I think at the time Sally was actually married to a fellow male astronaut um, when she was first in the program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not an unusual story for sure in terms of that aspect of her life. But um, 
but yeah, I, if you wanted to chime in about like some of the importance that uh, Sally Ride had for you, we'd, we'd love to hear about that. Well, I mean, you know, for me, Sally Ride, I was, you know, I was growing up in the 80s, and um, I'm a big space enthusiast, a big space buff. I remember watching the very first shuttle, um, you know, take off and land, and I was super, super excited about that. But, you know, my, my dilemma was that it was always boys that were, mm-hmm. you know, that were doing the flying and that were always the astronauts. So I remember when there was that... Um, well, like I talk about in the story, there were sort of two things that happened in 1983. I saw the movie The Right Stuff, which um, was a film um, that uh, dealt with the Mercury 7. And, um, mm-hmm. and then later that, you know, in June, um, Sally Ride blasted off into space. And I remember um, the, you know, the, the headlines that said, Ride, Sally, Ride. And I just felt like, oh, at last. I can see myself in space, you know, because I I really felt quite serious about wanting to be an astronaut. I was like, well, I'll either be an artiste or an astronaut. Maybe I should go to military school. That's what astronauts do. But um, but I didn't because that's not really my path. But uh, but space became like a super huge muse for me. And Sally was sort of the entry point to that um, that. Oh, that's really great. Yeah, I mean. For, for 80s kids, she's like everything, you know. <laughs> um, so that so uh, what? How did you guys? You so it was great to have you guys connected on this particular book. Um, you know, there are so many diverse uh, women who are being profiled in here in terms of like the kind of work they do and what they're famous for. Like Cat Black being someone who's young and doing her work right now. You know, Sally Ride having been someone more associated with the 80s. I forgot the name of the journalist who you're featured from the 30s and 50s who sounded completely fascinating or I had not heard about. Um, how did you guys yeah. go about making sure that there was a diverse range of subjects covered as well as a diverse uh, group of writers and artists contributing? Well, that's the ultimate joy of being a comic book editor. I mean, a comic book editor is the greatest job that no one knows about. And for me, there's nothing more satisfying than bringing disparate people from different places all over the world together to collaborate and create words and pictures on the page. So I'm always looking for a great balance. Um, Strangely enough, when I would reach out to writers, I would ask them to send me three subjects uh, that they'd like to feature because when you have 50 people, there's going to, you don't want overlap. So I was surprised that there was very little overlap. So that says a lot about how we're all so different and how our personal heroes and heroines are so diverse. Um, but I, I really went out of my way to think big and broad, you know, about, about, you know, the world at large. So we have contributors from South Africa, from India, from Greece, from Singapore, from so many different places. And you're right. Um, we have women that are famous today. We have um, historical figures like Harriet Tubman. To me, it was important to get a cross-section and to, to be inclusive. And I kept a, a, a close eye on it. Um, but it was not difficult because the people that I reached out to really um, had very specific reasons for coming up with their subjects. And like I said, I think the personal angle 
means the most. And you get the best story when it's something like Cecil. You know, she was, it was a turning point for her in the 80s. And I have to just ask Cecil, you're still on the line. What was yeah. the greatest part? What was the greatest part about working with legendary artist <laughs> Philip Bonds? Well, Philip Bond draws lady astronauts really, really well. And I love a lady astronaut um, drawing at all times. I was sitting next to Philip at um, Bubble um, in England this past fall. We were uh, we were sharing a table. I mean, not sharing a table, but our tables were next to each other. And um, and he had all these astronaut ladies. And I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And Philip was like, oh, I guess it's really easy for Cecil to just draw an astronaut. So when Shelley was like, what do you want to do? And do you want to do something with Philip Bond? I was like, astronauts. So that was the best part is that he, I mean, I mean, you can see some of the art on the Kickstarter. It's just gorgeous. He, he drew the space station. So amazing. And the shuttle and all the astronaut ladies. Uh, he, he also drew Cecil with Princess Me. Leia hair. <laughs> yeah. That must be said. Yeah. Part of me wants to really awesome. got excited. Right. Nice. Yeah. Nice. It's really exciting too, because anytime I can be a space lady princess, <laughs> yeah, exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so we we actually got a question from Twitter uh, from Teeny Howard. Um, is there Teeny Howard? Uh, That's yeah. You might know her. Yes. I don't know. Her. That name <laughs> that name sounds familiar. I believe so. I believe isn't she the writer of the Skeptics? Out now, Black M- This might have been a, a comic that is show. so interesting. I actually had dreams about it while I was on vacation. <laughs> Are you serious? Do tell. Serious. What, were you a, were you I, a retro sixties girl in your dreams? Uh, I mean, I I I am generally, and uh, but definitely <laughs> I, 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 I know that. Like this is just generally true, but um, but I know I definitely had like a cliffhanger sort of at like at the end of issue three like it was like very similar to the end of the issue three cliffhanger like i was basically witnessing the comic in my dream like i was in it basically at the press conference with the russians and the american students you know determining who actually had psychic powers like i was basically present in the comic book as a witness so so anyway yes that that teeny howard who has also been a guest on our podcast before (laughs) Uh, okay kind of ties into the question that we just touched upon, but was there any women uh, that you wanted there to be a story about or no one that no one picked? You know what? Um, I have to say that I had a list from the get-go of people that I thought would be interesting. And for the most part, I felt like I didn't need to throw anyone into the mix. You know, the the people that I talked to had such great ideas. It didn't have to be Shelley Comics. I mean, I really felt like I knew who my femme menifique was. I was hoping that no one wasn't going to pick the same person as I did. And sure enough, they didn't. But um, no, I mean, honest to God, I really feel like between, um, no, the answer is just no. I will not elaborate (laughs) further. Okay. to say that I am, you said you're generally a 60s retro girl. Yes. I'm specifically a 60s retro girl. Yeah. I, yeah. I just needed to say that. That's understood. I, 
That's understood. Okay. <laughs> this was so um, Cecil asked, actually asked this question. I want to throw it to both of you since she asked the question. I feel like this would be a good one. Of all the subjects, <laughs> who would you? Uh, who was your dream dinner party? Like, who would it be? Okay, Cecil, oh, wow. you're going to take that one first. <laughs> well, I like the idea of Maya Darren um, being the hostess, just because is because she's so she's so experimental. You know, it would probably yeah. be like some like weird performance arty kind of dinner where every every uh, course well, meant something. That's so that's interesting, Judy Chicago. Yeah. Yeah, well, like she Chicago. was on my personal list. She was my number two subject, but mm-hmm. but Rasheen Murphy just knocked too, her out. She? Was she? Well, see, we have so yeah. much in common. Yeah, she was a big uh, inspiration to me in film school, um, yeah, and Agnes Varda. You know, yeah. female filmmakers. I think Misty Copeland would be really good at the dinner party as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I just feel like I should I'm offer some context for... for folks, like, in terms of the dinner party thing, like, the, you know, basically there's a, a massive and significant piece of art, which is now housed in the Brooklyn Museum, called The Dinner Party by artist Judy Chicago, and she has a metaphorical dinner party for all of these fascinating women from history and mythology, and it's, like, her idea of who she'd like to have at a table together, and it is all these stories of additional women that are sort of weaving into the... The, the fabric of the dinner party table and is present in the plates. Um, like each of the plates is a different sculpture that she made. And so it sort of feels like this conversation is assuming that everyone knows that piece of art and that might not be the case for all of our listeners. So I just wanted to like footnote oh, that cool. for folks in case you know, that was. I actually, yeah. saw, I actually saw the dinner party, Chicago's the dinner party when I was a very little girl and it left a huge impression on my mm. tiny art brain. It was amazing. <laughs> I, didn't, it, I think it was one wow. of the first times I realized that you could make art like that, you know, that you could just, like, be conceptual in, in the way that you were doing, you were doing art. Hmm. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I have That's to say, cool. I want to invite Cindy Whitehead. I think I would want to have dinner with Cindy Whitehead and Roisin Murphy. Lots of champagne and skateboards. <laughs> oh, yes. And everybody oh, could get yeah. their very own Christoph Koppen's mask, which is the, uh, uh, a brilliant designer of masks that Roisin Murphy wears in concert. But Cindy Whitehead is so badass. I think she's an incredible inspiration to um, athletes. She's a, a Hall of Fame skateboarder, and Jim Rugg is doing her story. And I just think it would be so cool to meet her. She just is. Uh, she's just done incredible things, and and I I love I love um, when women have hobbies that are actually really you know they're they're sports. I mean I tap dance and and that's a sport. You know it's it's really aerobic and people make fun of it. It's mm. not just like you know goofy musical theater. I mean it's a it's a talent and it's 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 aerobic. And I feel the same way about skateboarding. So I think. Um, I think those are the two people I would invite to dinner as long as they bring a lot of champagne, expensive champagne. Well, we actually have a question that involves drinking, so this is a great uh, <laughs> movement into that one. <laughs> okay. Uh, is, is there going to be a uh, Femme Magnifique playlist 
and what should we be drinking while uh, having it on repeat? And that was from Tess Fowler. Oh, <laughs> wow. That's who a is a contributor well, to the Tess, story. Well, if, if memory serves, Tess is a whiskey drinker and expensive whiskey. So I think whiskey and only whiskey. Um, you know, there are a lot of musicians and singer-songwriters in this book. Beth Ditto, who is uh, the subject of Leah Moore and Allison Sampson's story, is a part of this from Gossip. And Kate Bush is Gail Simone's femme magnifique, and her I story will be drawn by Marguerite yeah. Savage, right? Uh-huh. How cool is that? Um, Kieran Gillen also mm-hmm. has uh, as you would come to expect from, you know, the one of the creators of Phonogram, his Femme Manifique is going to be a female uh, singer-songwriter. Um, so I'm sure we'll, you, you know, I'm sure the soundtrack. No, I cannot. That's going to, that's a yeah. secret I will only let Kieran reveal, okay. but I will tell you who is co- his collaborator is Annie Wu. Oh, so how, nice. you know, how oh, amazing awesome. is that going to be, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to, awesome I want to leave a little bit of, I want to leave a little mystery there. I'll let Karen announce it. Um, but yeah, I'd say, I'd say the soundtrack, what might be cool, Cecil, tell me if this sounds good to you. So soundtrack would be obviously selections from the pop side of, you know, the, the project, but then also maybe music of different periods, you know, like really go back into the thirties, you know, and, and pick um, Agnes Underwood, you know, who, is the subject of Christina Rice and John Davis Hunt story. She was the uh, she ran the uh, L.A. Herald, and she was a journalist uh, who kept a rifle under her desk. So maybe maybe some you know big band music too. Maybe we can really um, make it diverse and really hit each of the uh, decades um, with the music of the time as well. But mostly a Roisin Murphy soundtrack since I'm, since I'm editing the book. I think that's only fair. Yeah. It seems like you could also, like, you could do so many different kinds of playlists. Like, you could group them by sort of, like, you know, sports, like, you know, sports or, you know, arts or, you know, uh, all different kinds of things. I mean, if you're if you, I mean, there's Kate Bush in there, so obviously there should be a Kate Bush song on there, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I think there's so many different ways to do, like, so many great themed um, anthems. We could Playlist. do political anthems, yeah, anthems. too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right? Does that work? For, does that work for Tess? I just want to make sure it works for Tess. <laughs> well, she, I hope I'll she'll tweet, tweet at back Tess. at us. <laughs> well, listen, I'm dragging her to the Roisin Murphy concert next month, so you know it better work for her. <laughs> Somebody had to go with me this time. I went alone last time, and look what happened. We got, we got a Kickstarter book out of it. Yeah, I mean, it's been really impressive to me. Like, you guys have had, you know, this huge roster of, like, big, big, big names in comics, and you've gotten a ton of support. I know there's a big audience for this. I actually had a conversation with a friend of mine who was basically looking for this book, which does not yet exist, but soon will, to give to her niece. Like, it was like, oh, this nice. is what she wanted. So, yeah. Um in terms of like like the representation, the questions of like the writers and talent, like do you guys have a a process for like making sure that there's like racial diversity and like trans people and stuff like that who are included in the talent and in the yeah. stories that are told? 
Excellent. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Listen, I think one thing that's uh, next industry is that we've been more inclusive than most. Um, I know it's always a hot button issue, but I've been in the industry since 1988. I mean, I worked on Shade the Changing Man back in 1993. I mean, I don't know if you guys were even reading comics at that time because I'm sure you're all so much younger than me. But I mean, uh, no, there we're were not quite that no, much younger. But yes, three women. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Oh, I feel terrific now. Thank you. So there yeah. were, uh, you know, there were um, lesbian relationships, bisexual relationships, gay relationships. I mean, we handled it all in those books. You know, they were really um, provocative and and honest. You know, and I think that. As an industry, we've always been good. There's always room for improvement. But without a doubt, I wanted to be inclusive here. I wanted to acknowledge everybody. You know, everyone has different heroines and different philosophies. And so, yeah, it was definitely important to me and to my co-curators. I don't want to act like this was just my book. I mean, Brian and Christy Miller were so instrumental in helping sort of guide the balance here. Of, uh, of of subjects and contributors. And I think it's important that you know that from the get-go, Brian and Christy and I really felt like we wanted male contributors here too. We didn't want it to be just some pointed feminist manifesto. We all believe that men and women have to pave the way for equal rights. And there are so many male feminists, and we wanted it to be a balance. You know, we we really didn't want it to just be, you know, the only, you know, female view of women in history. I mean, that was something that was very important to us we, from, from the very beginning. Yeah, I definitely hear a lot of folks talk about how important it is for men to talk about the women who inspire them so that it's not just looked at as being something that only women are expected to do, but that men are expected to have women heroes as well. Yep. Um, the next question we've got from, uh, Twitter, also from Tess Fowler, um, who are your, for each of you, uh, who are your top three lady heroes and why? Mm. Tess Fowler must be really bored tonight. I guess she doesn't have, <laughs> I, I thought she was working on a comic book. Tess Fowler All right. Really good Cecil. <laughs> Cecil, I guess, she, you know, she does. She, you know, that she is, she does. Cecil, why don't you take that one first? Well, I, I would like to say that Shelley Bond is a is a is a woman that's on my list. I mean, she's you know what you know what it's true. What? You're amazing, and you've done so much for comics, and you're a pioneer. And you know, I just I just think that uh, I just I just think that you know, I'm sure that someday some girl is going to write about you in Femme Magnifique number two or number three or something. So what? that's number one. Yeah. Oh, my and goodness. And then I'm going to say um, – I'm blushing. I'm say uh, I always really liked Anna Pavlova, who was a ballet dancer, mm. um, you know, uh, back in the day. It was a big um, – a big ballet dancer, ballet lover when I was little. And um, I remember, like, the first, I think, like, in first grade or second grade, you knew you had to do, like, a book report on somebody. And um, that was the first book report I did was, uh, you know, a biography. It was a biography of Anna Pavlova. So I think Anna Pavlova I would put down as um, as uh, as one of my um, ladies uh, for sure. 
And now to you, Shelley. No pressure. Well, no pressure. I mean, I already mentioned too, as you know, mm-hmm. Maya Darren and Roisin Murphy and Agnes Varda. I mean, again, mm. really um, powerful filmmakers who inspired me, you know, throughout my lifetime. And even though, you know, I still feel like um, I, I – Comics, editing comics is in my bones. As much as I still love to watch films, like all I want to do is make comics, and I want to, I want to make stories that are first and foremost best told on the page. Because to me, the greatest joy is deciding what to say, what to show, and creating movement on a flat surface. There's nothing more fascinating to me. Also, what I love about comics is that. It's not as expensive, you know, um, as filmmaking. You can you can tell a story. You can force an artist to draw a Grand Canyon scene or a you know, a Glastonbury concert uh, with thousands of people, you know, behaving badly. It's a lot cheaper to draw it than to film it. And so I think that I think that that's another thing about comics. You know, they're also quicker to make. So whereas a film might take years till you shoot it and edit it and distribute it, you can put a comic together in, in a matter of months if you're, you know, you've got the right people on the job. Speaking of, like, how long have it, has it taken you from start to finish for this project? I mean, obviously it's still going on, but let's say up to that Kickstarter start, like how long has every, you know, it been? Well, we've been actively working on it since early November, you know, in some capacity. I mean, I, 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 I guess we reached out maybe to 20 creators. You know, I, didn't, I was a little reticent to, to reach out to more than 20 just in case this went belly up. Because my whole, my whole point was, you know, it's, we've got to make it exquisite or not at all. I didn't want just some small book, you know, with just, minimal production values. I knew if we were going to do it, we had to go for broke. So I was really expecting us not even to make, you know, the minimum funding, uh, which would have been, you know, devastating. But sometimes that's what happens with Kickstarters. I mean, you just don't know timing-wise. But it's been a lot of work. I have to say when you have three people curating, it, it helps, especially with so many creators involved, and, and I have to give props to Brian and Christy because they have been doing a lot of the heavy lifting since I've been working um, at IDW uh, secretly, but uh, we announced it this weekend. Um, but Femmanifique has been, you know, I've been working on it daily since, um, I'd say, the middle of November, but most recently since I've been, I've had the other day job, this has been my night and weekend job, so that's why I don't have much of a voice um, because I'm, you know, I'm constantly working on both projects. Yeah, I do want to just talk real briefly for folks who haven't heard about your new work with IDW. Um, you are now launching a creator-owned imprint at IDW Publishing, which is really a, you know, a comics publishing house that's exploded in the past several years and is doing a lot of really impressive comics. And I heard you were starting your own imprint there. And I was immediately very excited and emailed all my comics people because that sounds awesome. Um, and I just would love to hear, like, sort of what, to whatever extent you were able to share things. I know it's just sort of starting out. Sort of what was your vision for, for doing this? Yeah, well, 
Thank you very much. I'm really excited. The imprint's called Black Crown, and I've talked about so much in the past, like, 40 minutes with you guys that links back to this, but one of your early questions to me was how did I get into the business? Well, I told you about I, I discovered comics in my screenwriting class, and Love and Rockets was one of the two comics that I picked up on that first day at the comic book store. And it blew my mind. Love the Hernandez brothers. Never had a chance to work with Jaime, sadly, but Gilbert and I have worked together so often over the years. And what I always loved about Love and Rockets is it's comics and rock and roll. You know, you would you would see the, those books, and to this day you still see the, their comics across the, you know, the room at the comic book shelf. And, and their covers just jump into your arms. They're just so cool. They're so smart. They're, they really capture the, you know, the sort of modern life. And I just, um, th- those are the kinds of comics I want to create again. Because um, those are the comics I read. And I feel like Black Crown is a line that I'm curating for people who like the things I, that I like. And people that like to read books that sort of, that sort of fall up the cross street of, comics and chaos, you know, books that represent the way we live now, that are weird and frenetic, that kind of like just explore the human condition in, in all its awful glory. And yet the books have black humor, which I think is so important. I mean, in this age of social and political rhetoric, everywhere we turn, there's just negativity. I want to make sure that the books are balanced, that they have bravado and they also, like, they're fun to read because I think that, like, I think people need to read more again. I think that people are just, you know, doing a lot of talking about reading and thinking about reading. I think, I think it's time for us to really put great stories on paper again and just really enjoy comics as, as a medium and an art form. So that's what you'll see with Black Crown. They're all creator-owned books, and uh, so far um, – we've got such a great lineup. Our debut book, uh, which is going to be coming out in October, I look at it as, uh, you know, your debut comic book and a new imprint is kind of like a debut album for a record company. So it's a statement of intent. You just got to grab everybody, like completely from the title and the cover and the concept. And this one is unlike any other that launched any imprint in the history of comics. So no pressure on the creators. Wow. To, you know, I was about to say, no wait, pressure on that one. Right? right? <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. And don't be surprised if you see some names from Femme Manifique crossing over into Black Crown because, you know, having Femme Manifique as a collection of short stories in an anthology was a great way for me to see who really has the chops. You know, who are these new people on the scene who can really write who have interesting mm-hmm. stories to tell and very sharp original cadence, you know, in, in comics. Who's going to be the next Grant Morrison? Who's going to be the next Gal Simone? And, and also, you know, artistically, I mean, who's really going to, who, who, who is really going to do the, the visually arresting artwork that's going to blow your mind, take you to new places? That's what you're going to see with Black Crown. Without it's interesting names. because we know that, one of the yeah, yeah, I mean, I know one of the the roles that anthologies and kickstarted books have played in 
in the years that I've been following them, really, is that they've been a place to find and discover new talent um, and help to elevate underheard, underrepresented voices who, like, really need to be heard because they're doing interesting stuff. So I like the, um, the synchronicity of the anthology that you have coming and then also having, you know, the, the imprint kind of coming at the same time. Yeah. Well, that's my MO, you know, that's, I, I love bringing people together. I love um, bringing industry veterans with neophytes because honestly, I think that they could do a world of good for each other. You know, sometimes you have like the industry professional who maybe is getting a little repetitive, maybe needs to be challenged, maybe needs to kind of come back towards, you know, the, the modern times and sort of up his or her game. And then you have the newcomer who could really use some, some honing of the skills. And I think sometimes you bring these people together and they really inspire each other. You can see that on the page. And again, just another one of those things that is the editor's greatest joy because as you know, editors, you know, are mostly notorious for just like poking people about deadlines, reminding them that they're late. Um, there are so many other facets to comic book editing and, Really, there's nothing like seeing two people collaborate and seeing just the art come alive on the page. Um, you know, one of the things you mentioned is about how editors are really not uh, seen necessarily, like their, their importance in comic creation isn't always evident. But I definitely know a lot of folks who would love to do comics editor work, um, and I, if you and we don't really, we just tend not to ask people like, do you have suggestions for folks breaking in because there's just so much of that already. But I don't know if anybody's spoken particularly about coming into doing editorial work and what kind of a background um, and what kind of steps people could be taking if that's somewhere they want to see themselves professionally. Yeah, that sounds like another subject for a podcast. I'd be up for it. I. I... <laughs> I, would, I would say we're probably game on that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that actually would be a lot of fun. I mean, you know, I, I, I can tell you that a lot of people get into comics by applying for a position at a, at a, you know, a big two company and either getting in as an assistant editor or, which is more often the case, you get in sort of in as an editorial assistant and then work your way over to editorial or perhaps production assistant. But, um, yeah, you know, it's, there's a lot to be said on the subject. I also recommend to people when they go to conventions to try to get a few minutes to talk to an editor. I mean, it's really about connections. Um, that's the best way in. But I, I think it's important, you know, nowadays for people that want to be comic book editors to be well-rounded. You know, I would mentioned that I came in with a film background. Um, it's really good to have people from lots of different, uh, fields, you know, you, you you have history majors, you have science or psychology majors. You know, I've had assistants who were, you know, I had an assistant who went to the School of Visual Arts who was our intern and then eventually became my assistant. So I think in addition to having a strong grasp of English and certainly a background, you know, in English literature helps, you know, it, it, it's great just to be, you know, well-versed in, in the arts and also have, you know, maybe, you know, foreign languages. I feel like there are so many different skill sets that would be useful. But I think most important when you edit, you have to be able to juggle a lot of plates. You have to be able to deal with a lot of personalities. 
In fact, some people have said that they, they equate comic book editing to uh, being an anthropologist because you're dealing with so many different personality types. And there's truth in that, absolutely. Um, different temperaments. You have to figure out different ways to work with people um, to make the most out of their talent and also get the most um, from, from them in, in a finite period of time as well. So it's a fascinating subject. I would love to elaborate on it and continue at a later podcast. If you're up for it, we'd love that. And I oh, think yeah. that was a great answer to start with as well. So thank you. Yeah, totally. Cool. Do no we have problem. any final questions from the Twitterverse of fandom, perhaps, Brett? Yes, we do. Uh, we've got one final one from Tess Fowler, who asks, since this uh, first Femme Magnifique has been so successful, might we there be a volume two? I've already got my credit card out and waiting. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I like the way you think. Hey, you know, I would certainly be up for it. I mean, there are so many subjects we could we could cover. It'd be great if we had like a a, a library of volumes, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Oh, I think mm-hmm. I think there are so many ladies in the world that are so amazing that yeah, I, I mean, it's and there's it's endless. Yeah. So Tess Fowler sharpen your pencil who knows <laughs> we might be coming back for you i uh, definitely hope I, so so well, yeah i was about to say i'm i'm hoping there will be a volume too I, I can't wait to get this in my hands to see it because this is a really cool concept and uh yeah well, thank I mean, you this is the type of thing that we Kickstarter are... was kind of made for well, thank you so much, and we're really, really close to getting the 50 stories, um, unlocking that level, which I, which I believe um, is 65,000, and at 75,000, we get the hardcover, and believe me, I've got big plans for, like, the spot varnish and the, and the heavy paper stock. I mean, we really want to make this magnificent, so I really appreciate that you, get, you guys gave us an hour to talk about it. And I really hope that you can encourage all your friends and relatives, you know, to, to invest because it's really, it's, it, it, it's for a great cause. It's to really um, pay it forward for the next generation so that we can salute all these wonderful women in pop politics, art, and science who have paved the way, who've cracked ceilings, who, who have been game changers. And I hope it will also encourage young women to seek out careers in areas they might not have known about, including the comic book editor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Hells yes. Um, so we're coming close to that hour. Um, before we wrap up, we like to give our guests kind of the platform to plug whatever they like to plug. I mean, obviously, we've been plugging Fen- Banding Feet for like the last hour. Uh, but if you want to mention like websites people can go check out, you, where they can find you on Twitter, Facebook, wherever, uh, the floor is both uh, yours. So we'll start with you, Shelley. Well, I pretty much think I just gave you my my closing remarks. I mean, I would love for people to check out the Kickstarter at Femmanifique and also uh, to follow me on Twitter and Facebook. And I know Cecil has some pretty great books out right now, which I'd love to let her uh, give some props about. Well, I, I'm, I'm writing Shade the Changing Girl, which actually Shelley brought me in on over at um, DC's Young Animal. 
and um, and have a graphic novel about a girl hobo in 1932 that comes out on Dark Horse in um, in April. Uh, oh wow, that sounds amazing. amazing. Yeah, I'm pretty excited what? about it. Girl dressed up as a boy travels America. We will have Is to have you back for that one. Home? Yeah. For yeah. Real. Oh yeah, that'd be great. Um, and I'm at Missy on Twitter. It's called Soupy what Leaves Home. Okay. Cool. Yes. We will note that one down. And then now that I have your contact info, we'll definitely have you on for that because that actually sounds like a Yay. really cool concept. Yes. Uh-huh. Thanks for being the special guest, Cecil. That was so <laughs> impromptu and cool. <laughs> well, you know, it was it's super fun. I'm so excited to be a part of Femme Magnifique. And, uh, you know, and uh, Shelly, I support this so much. Well, I thank you for that. You're amazing. You're a femme magnifique in your own right. <laughs> right back at you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for both of you uh, for coming on, and we'll definitely have to have you both uh, back on down the road. Sounds great. Thank you, guys. Right. Yep, thank you. Thanks, bye. Yep, bye. Thank you. And... and who want to follow well, so us online. Yeah, before we even then. get to that, so people should go, uh, so for those who don't know what we were talking about, uh, Femme Magnifique is on Kickstarter. I want, want to do the one final plug so people can at least find it. Yes. Um, it's on Kickstarter. If you go search for Femme Magnifique, you, you should be able to find it. Uh, there's links within this description of the show, uh, so you'll be able to catch it there and uh, listen in. Um, Sorry, not listening, but go and uh, contribute to that. Um, there's some awesome uh, levels of support on Kickstarter. Uh, there, it is funded, so it's definitely coming out. And as Shelly mentioned, that uh, you know, we get closer to the seventy-five thousand. There will be a hardcover if there's another like thirteen hundred dollars, roughly. There's going to be a whole bunch of, uh, of more um, uh, stories within. So go and give. I've I've done my pit, you know. I've done my part and uh, can't wait to get it in my hand and should be out roughly later this year. It's, it says estimated in September. So uh, you contribute now and you'll get it later. Um, but yes. So before we wrap up, Alana, where can folks find you? I am on Twitter all the time at Elana underscore Brooklyn. That's E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. And, and for those who uh, need Yep. Yeah. And I'm uh, on Tumblr those, somewhat less, but yeah, still Tumblr. there, right. also at Ilana, with no underscore and Brooklyn. Thanks. Sorry about that. It's been a bit. I I, I stumbled on that one. Uh, so for those who, who are listening in and want to follow the site, you can catch us at graphicpolicy.com. We've got tons of comic news, reviews, interviews, more every single day. Uh, and then you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, YouTube, all at Graphic Policy, keeping it nice and consistent. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. We're going to be uh, talking Logan, the number one movie in America currently, and probably will repeat next week, or there's a good chance it will repeat next week. Uh, so we're going to have all sorts of interesting discussions because it is a fascinating film that is open for tons of interesting discussions. So listen in at our normal time, <clears throat> same bat channel, same bat uh, hour. 
thanks so much for listening as always. The show itself will be on demand afterwards. You can catch it on iTunes and Stitcher in probably about an hour or two if you came in late. And it will be downloaded and uh, uploaded to SoundCloud where you can go and take it uh, on the road and catch it at graphicpolicy.com tomorrow in the afternoon. So as always, thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Brett. I'm Ilana. Keep it geeky.